begin this morning with prayer. Our Father, we are grateful for the Bible and for the Holy Spirit. Help us this morning as we consider what you have taught us about divorce. Open our minds so that we can understand, so that we can do the work of learning. And please protect us from error. We ask these things in the name of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So last time we saw that the Mosaic Law allowed for, allowed, permitted, or if you want, tolerated, fault-based divorce. Okay? Fault-based divorce. And what is fault-based divorce? The way I've uh, taught you, the way I've defined it. And you have to have a good reason. There is a reason that is considered satisfactory, a reason that justifies breaking up a marriage. When we look at what the Bible teaches about marriage, we see that It is supposed to last throughout the life of the husband and wife. The Bible does not teach that those marriages which take place in this world are going to continue in the next life, but rather the marriages that take place in this life are to last until the death of husband and wife. That's the way it should be. That's the original design. That is the intention. And if Adam and Eve had not sinned against God, that's the way it would be. No one would die. No one would ever commit a fault that would justify a divorce, breaking up a family. And we know, not just from the Bible, but we know from our own experience that when a marriage is broken... When a family is torn apart, it is a horrible, horrible, terrible thing. And especially if there are children involved, it's really, really bad for the kids. Really, really bad for the kids. And so, in the Mosaic Law, because of sin, we live in a sinful world. Because we live in a sinful world, a divorce was permitted or allowed in the Mosaic Law. And the passage that we looked at was Deuteronomy 24, beginning at verse 1. And let's read that. I will be using again this morning the New American Standard Bible. Update uh, edition, 1995. Why is that? Well, for the most part, I find it the most literal. And by that I mean word by word, Translation. Does that mean it's the best? Well, I think it's the most literal. And so that's what uh, I'll, I'll be using here. So Deuteronomy chapter 24, beginning of verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency. And we looked at the, uh, the Hebrew uh, expression here and how it was interpreted by the Jews. There was one school of thought that understood this indecency to be 
some kind of immorality, probably sexual immorality, and then another school of thought among the teachers of the Jewish religion, the rabbis, that um, this could be anything. And there's a quote from a part of the Mishnah, uh, those writings that interpret uh, the Old Testament, which said that uh, even if a man has a wife that spoils his food, that would be sufficient to break up uh, the marriage. So a modern example, you know, my wife, she burns my toast almost every day, and I'm tired of it, something like that. So we have this indecency, that's the fault in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it... Are we to assume that this is an arranged marriage? Uh, No. So he would find this out after he proposed and they courtshiped and they married and he would find out after the marriage ceremony of their husband and wife. In the Jewish way of marrying people, I'm I'm hesitating because I'm I'm not sure how to answer answer your question. In the Jewish way of measuring uh, marrying people... There was a, a betrothal period or engagement period. And that was really, really similar to being married. And it would last maybe up to a year. Okay? And during that period of time, those two that are betrothed, or those two that are engaged, is really, really close to being married, but not exactly the same. They don't live together. Okay? So well, the question that you asked, the reason I hesitate is because when we get into the teaching of Jesus which we will this morning, hopefully shortly, there will be a question about uh, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, whether or not what Jesus says about divorce covers the engagement period as well as the marriage period or just the marriage period. Now, I think the correct answer to your question is that this is not referring to or assuming an arranged marriage. It's not assuming that. Now, does this cover the period of betrothal? Uh, Pastor Fry, can you help me here? (laughs) That's the way I see it. Exactly, exactly. So this applies to after the marriage has been consummated, probably arranged, but but arrangement, the way Hollywood has depicted arrangement, and I don't know how many of you have seen the movie, and I like it very much, and I watch it often with my wife, um, Fiddler on the Roof, the way they depict arranged marriages, uh, you have an arrangement made, you had a match made, and the people that are matched up maybe don't even like each other. I mean, there could be something like that. I don't think that would happen. I think the pe- people that match up uh, are have, have enough what my high school math teacher used to call horse sense, okay, 
horse sense to realize you don't match up people that can't stand each other, right? I mean, that's not going to be a match made in heaven. I mean, the people at least have, have to be, uh, what, able to tolerate each other, something like that. So is, is that okay? Did, did that do it? Yeah, yeah, I did. Okay, so that'll work good. Uh, so there's some indecency. Uh, in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. Now, the rest of this is going to have to do with uh, the possibility of remarriage. So at verse 2, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination, toiva before the Lord, and you shall not Bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And so we talked about the ins and outs of this, and you have my ideas from the notes last time about this. And so now this is the teaching of the Mosaic Law. This is the teaching of the Mosaic Law. And so now we'll go to the New Testament. We'll go to the New Testament. We're going to take a look at the teachings of Jesus, and we're going to take a look at the teachings of the Apostle Paul. And there I think you'll have the New Testament teaching on divorce. Uh, we will consider the uh, Mark-Luke teaching first. We'll consider the Mark-Luke teaching first, and then we'll go to Matthew and consider the Matthew teaching um, and so let's do that. So on the notes that I've given you, uh, page 19 at the top, the teaching of Jesus on divorce. To the best of my knowledge, as far as I know, there are four explicit direct teachings on divorce. Four. In the Synoptic Gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I don't know of anything that is an explicit teaching on marriage uh, by Jesus and John, unless maybe something having to do with the woman at the well and you've had all these husbands. That may imply something, but I'm going to stick with, I suggest we stick with the, uh, the main direct passages. So we find them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So, the way it reads without the context in Mark is Mark 10, verses 11 and 12. And he, Jesus, said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man... She is committing adultery. That is the teaching of Mark. Now, there are people 
when I was going to school, I'm glad that's over. But when I was going to school, I was taught that a lot of people think that Mark is the basic gospel message and Matthew and Luke are going to be based on Mark. And they are developments for the developments, elaborations of Mark. Not everybody thinks that. Not everybody thinks that. But that's one idea. Uh, I'm, I don't think that's true, but that's a really popular idea. Now, if that is true, I don't think it is, then here you got the basic teaching. Now, Luke. Luke 18, uh, 16, 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. So, these two scriptures I suggest to you are practically equivalent. They're practically equivalent. Not identical, but practically equivalent. Got got some main ideas here, which are, both deal with divorce and remarriage. Both teach that there is no good reason for divorce. In other words, they teach a no-fault divorce. And divorced people cannot remarry without committing adultery. So, if these two scriptures were the only New Testament teaching on divorce and remarriage, the matter, I think, would be rather clear-cut. But, we have the teaching of Jesus in Matthew and the Apostle Paul in Romans and 1 Corinthians. So let's look at the teaching of Jesus in Matthew. Now, the, um, and I still remember, not real well, but I remember sections of, uh, we went through the Sermon on the Mount, Pastor Fry, maybe, maybe a year or so, took about a year or so, maybe 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, to go through this verse by verse. Seven chapters. Seven chapters. And it was excellent. Um, So, the context for the remarks of Jesus on divorce, the context for the remarks of Jesus on divorce will come from what Jesus has to say about what he's doing here. Okay? What he's doing here. And so, what we need to do is we need to go and look, first of all, at what Jesus has to say about the law and the prophets. And so, if you go to Matthew chapter 5, and you take a look at what Jesus has to say about the law and the prophets, beginning at verse 17, chapter 5, verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17. Again, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard update. Jesus says to this large gathering of people, crowd of people, Jesus is on the mountain. Allegedly, I went to that mountain, and I saw it last summer where, where he 
gave this uh, sermon. Uh, people are pretty sure that was the place. And uh, it's an amazing place. It overlooks the Sea of Galilee. And they're hills, not really what I would call mountains. And it's not real rocky. The grass was fairly high, but it was dry. They hadn't had rain. They don't have a lot of rain. But it would have been an excellent place for people to gather around. Jesus could sit down at the top and give an address. And this is what Jesus said. Do not think that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I do not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls or fails to teach one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so a couple of things here. First of all, there's going to be this idea that Jesus came to fulfill and not abolish. And then another very important interpretive category here is the idea that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so one of the things that we need to ask ourselves uh, as we go through this, uh, which we'll not do today, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is, how in the world is it possible for anyone to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? How is that possible? And, uh, well, we're going to get that answer. Uh, I'll not get into it now. But um, anyway, Jesus has come not to abolish the law or the prophets. He's come to fulfill. Now, lots and lots have been written about this. And this is the way I take it. This is the way I understand it. But Jesus has come to accomplish everything that has been said about him in the law and the prophets, which is essentially to say that Jesus has come to do the work of saving his people from their sins. Right? That's why he came into this world. He came to save his people from their sins. And we have about a three-year public ministry this uh, Sermon is going to be given toward the beginning of that. And so during that, well, the entire life of Jesus, but especially that public ministry of Jesus, this is when Jesus is going to accomplish everything that the law and the prophets have spoken of concerning the things that need to be done to save sinners. Okay? This has to do with accomplishing redemption. Now, people say that we've got to separate that from applying redemption. The redemption of Jesus Christ has been applied even in the Old Testament, okay? And it will be applied after Jesus dies. And the reason it can be applied in the Old Testament is because it is certain that it will be accomplished 
at a period in time, and Jesus comes at the right time to accomplish redemption. And so Jesus is going to come and accomplish everything that needs to be done to save his people from their sins. Now, that involves the ending of the old covenant and the replacing of it with the new covenant. And there is going to be tremendous similarity, tremendous uh, continuity between the old and the new, but there's going to be some big differences too. Some big differences too. Why do I say this? Well, because what Jesus is going to teach about divorce, okay, is going to replace what we have in the Mosaic Law. It's going to replace that. Now, um, is it going to be similar or equivalent or identical? And that's something that we'll look at. Is it going to be similar or is it going to be roughly equivalent or identical to the Mosaic Law? Well, let's, let's look at it. And so we have that teaching here, beginning at verse 21. Let me go back to the sheet to read what you got um, before you, what you have before you. Uh, I'll do only Matthew 31 and 32. It was said, Matthew chapter 5, 31, 32, New American Standard Update, it was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of, and the Greek word here is pornea, pornea. That's the word from which we get the English word pornography, except for pornea. Translated in the New American Standard Update, unchastity makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then in Matthew 19, at verse 9, we have what I believe is an equivalent statement. Jesus said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for pornea, translated here immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery. It is my carefully considered opinion that there is no honest way of concluding that the Matthew scriptures are practically equivalent to the Mark and Luke scriptures. They're just not. The obvious reason is that the Matthew scriptures teach an exception to the divorce teaching in Mark and Luke. The Matthew scriptures teach that pornea is the exception. It is the exception to the no divorce. Matthew and Luke do not qualify their divorce teaching with 
except for pornea. However, Matthew does. Why the pornea exception in the teaching of Jesus recorded for us in Matthew? And this this is what generates the big controversy about divorce. This is what generates the big controversy about divorce. The Mark Luke versus the Matthew. The Mark Luke, no exception stated. The Matthew, exception. That's why we have a variety of views today in the Christian world. That's why we have it. And so, in our Confession of Faith, 1689, nothing said about divorce. In our Constitution, nothing said about divorce. Now, the standard in the Reformed Presbyterian government-type churches, the standard has been the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the Westminster Confession of Faith has a, I think, real clear real uh, specific uh, statement on divorce. My personal opinion from studying this, from having to live with this and go through this for 47 years almost, is that the Westminster Confession of Faith has it right. It's got it right. The Westminster Confession of Faith, I'll, I'll... we, we got the Baptist version before us here, but I'll bring, bring you a copy of it. The Westminster Confession of Faith basically says the New Testament teaching is a fault-based divorce, and the New Testament teaching on the fault is, one, adultery, or, or fornication committed prior to the marriage, and, and, I'll give everybody a copy later, and desertion, willful desertion that cannot be remedied by the state or by the church. So you've got those, those, those two, two faults there, sexual immorality and desertion. Now, is this the correct view? Is this right? I think it is. I think it is. Uh, And you need to consider it. We're going to go through the rest of this now. Um, What then can we say about the difference between the Matthew teaching and the Mark Luke teaching? Well, I know of four possible responses. I know of four possible responses. Response one, the teaching of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is logically inconsistent. The teaching of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is inconsistent. Two, the Pornea exception in Matthew was added later. It's not in the original text. The best version, the best copies that we have of the original Gospel of Matthew do not include this, and it was added later, and that's why we have it. 
The third possibility is that the Pornea exception applies only to the engagement period. Okay? Applies only to the engagement period. And then Matthew, excuse me, Mark and Luke are going to apply to the marriage period. And so the Pornea exception does not apply to the marriage period, in which case there's no inconsistency. That's the third possibility. The fourth possibility is the Pornea exception is the most complete form of Jesus' teaching on divorce. It's the most complete form. In my opinion, the best explanation is number four. The best explanation is number four. The Pornea exception is the most complete form of Jesus' teaching on divorce. I say that is the best answer. How long does a Sermon on the Mount take place in terms of uh, chapters and verses in Matthew? We've got three chapters, right? The other place you find it is where? Luke. Luke 6, right? And it's about, uh, what, 30, 40 verses. So the version in Luke is very condensed, very short, very small. Whereas the version that you have in Matthew, my, it's, uh, it's three, three chapters. Lots and lots of information. So what you have in Matthew is the complete teaching, whereas what you have in Mark and Luke is the partial teaching, okay? The partial teaching, the general view, whereas in Matthew, you've got the complete teaching, okay? I think that's the best explanation. Now, there are people that don't agree with that. There are people that don't agree with that. Um, let's look at this matter of inconsistency. We're going to have to deal with inconsistency when, when we go down the road here. Um, my wife was present when the uh, group went from the church in the neighborhood, and she was said that one, one family that, that would talk a little bit, a man in the house says, I know what's in the Bible, it sucks. And uh, that was not the response given by everyone, but I know what's in the Bible, it sucks. And prob probably the idea there is that the teaching of the Bible uh, does not make sense. The teaching of the Bible is logically inconsistent. The teaching of the Bible has all kinds of problems. Well, there you have a situation where you need to understand something about how to deal with the claim that the Bible is irrational. It doesn't make sense because it is inconsistent or, or logically contradictory. So I'm, I'm going to say a little something about this. We'll deal more with it later. Um, so, this is not from the Bible, but most people, including Christians, are prepared to say if something is reasonable for us to accept, to believe, to live by, if something is going to make sense, then it has to be consistent. Consistency is a requirement of something that's reasonable. 
Okay? And so let's look, not technically, but let's look just a little bit at what that means. So let's say I, have, I make a series of statements. I tell you that... Um, Uh, the sky is blue. Callahan, that's me, is a U.S. citizen. If this is a consistent set of statements or beliefs, it must be possible for all to be true at the same time. Okay? And I want to emphasize this. It must be possible for all to be true at the same time. Now, most of us would say, well, the sky is blue. Yeah. Callahan is a U.S. citizen. Yeah. It's possible for these two statements to be true at the same time. Okay? Now, let me change this. What if we were to replace the sky is blue with the, um, the sky is... Um, I don't know, uh, green. And the sense of this is ordinarily during the daytime, you know, normal conditions, you look up into the sky. Is the sky green? No. So this is false. But we in fact think that it is true that the sky is blue. Now, replacing the sky as green, uh, and we now have Callahan as a U.S. citizen, is this a consistent set? Yes, it is. Why? Not because it is actually true that the sky is green, but it could be that the sky is green. It is possible. How? Well, the world would have to be different but we can imagine the world being different. It could be that the kind of light that is emitted by the sun, which goes through the atmosphere, could give a green sky as opposed to a blue sky. Okay? Now, the reason I go into this is to point out that consistency does not depend upon truth. Okay? It does not depend upon truth. But inconsistency guarantees error. And that's the point. Inconsistency guarantees error. All right? Now, if I were to change this and say Callahan is not a U.S. citizen, and then Callahan is a U.S. citizen, then here we have an example of something that is what? It's impossible for these two statements or beliefs to be true at the same time. Right? I mean, if this is true, then that must be false. 
if this is false, then this must be true. All right? So consistency does not guarantee truth, but inconsistency guarantees error. And so when someone says the teaching of Jesus in Matthew and Luke combined with the teaching of Jesus in um, let's see, Mark and Luke combined with Matthew is inconsistent, that is to say that there's something false in that teaching, right? Let me, let me state that again. To say that the teaching in Matthew, Luke, and Mark is inconsistent is to say that it cannot all be true at the same time, which is to say that there's something there which is false. And if we take a look at what the Bible says about itself, what is the most important fundamental claim that the Bible says about itself? It is what? It is the Word of God. Okay? It's the Word of God. And we see that it is impossible for God to lie, in which case there is no falsehood, there is no error in the Scriptures. Maybe you want to qualify that, maybe you want to qualify that, and say in the autographs, the original Scriptures, as they uh, were given by means of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, moving in certain people to commit to writing the truth of God. Okay, you may want to qualify that, you may not. So when it's all said and done, it's really important for us, I think, to show that the teaching of Jesus in Mark and Luke is not inconsistent with the teaching of Jesus in Matthew. Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. No inconsistency here. And this uh, hogwash about the exception clause was, was installed later uh, by people who want to open up the possibility for divorcing wives. It was added later, and it's not in the original. There's just no evidence for that. There's no evidence for that. There are textual variants, which is to say that when you look at the collection of the manuscripts that we have, there are some differences, but there's no real good evidence for that. And the people who hold this view are the pe people who think that there are a lot of problems with the Bible. A lot of problems with the Bible, such that the Bible has not been protected and guarded and kept safe from error throughout the ages by Almighty God in His wise and holy providence. So what are we left with? Well, we're left with the possibility that understanding Matthew 5 and 19 in terms of the engagement period and understanding Mark and Luke in terms of the actual marriage period, that would get you out of a problem of inconsistency. Okay, do you, do you see that? Or do I need to work that out, lay that out again? Caleb, you with me? Okay, so the engagement period is different from the marriage period. Cornea would have to do with the engagement period, but not, and Pornea in terms of sexual immorality there, but otherwise nothing during the marriage period. Okay? So, doing everything possible to try to be honest with the text, 
my response to the idea that pornea exception applies only to the engagement period, but not the period of actual marriage. I don't, I don't see any good reason for doing that, since I am going to assume that there's no inconsistency here, because we get the complete picture in Matthew and only part of the picture in Mark and Luke. In other words, there's no reason to make this, there's no reason to make this Matthew statement about divorce apply to the engagement period, whereas Mark Luke apply to the marriage, apply to the marriage period. So what I'm going to teach you is that uh, it is true that the Matthew is the complete teaching, whereas the Mark and Luke is the partial teaching. And by the way, by the way, when the Bible is complete, the New Testament Bible is complete, the basic rule of understanding the Bible is we're going to allow the Bible to interpret the Bible, which is to say that we're going to take everything that the Bible says about a particular subject and put it together, fit it together in a package. We're not going to pick and choose. Okay? So, having said that, we're out of time, and we're just getting warmed up. Okay? We're just getting warmed up. Um, We didn't even get to page 20. So, I don't know if I... um, So I, I remember my son Jonathan tore his ACL. He went in, the doctor fixed it. The doctor came out of the surgery and he said, Jonathan just did great. Jonathan just did great. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, what are you talking about, man? He laid there asleep. Okay? Jonathan didn't do anything. What I want, what I want to hear about is how you do. Did you do a good job? And the guy that worked on me last week, I told him that. I said, so how'd you do? He says, well, I think I did a good job. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, I hope you did. And so I'll say the same thing about this lesson. I hope I did a good job at least beginning to open this up for you. And if I didn't, well, I'll try to do better next time. So we close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you love us and you give us the truth. Even sometimes that truth is uh, hard to accept, difficult for us. We live in a sinful world and things aren't always the way they should be, but, but you always tell us the truth and you protect your word so that we have your truth. We thank you, Father, again for this, and may this lesson honor you and help us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.